the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. If you've had to gas up your car within the last couple of weeks, no doubt you've noticed an increase in the cost, an average of 4.4 cents a liter to be exact. This represents part of the federal carbon tax that came into effect on April 1st. We're also paying more to heat our homes, but to offset the costs, the federal liberals have promised tax rebates. But the Queen's Park Tories are fighting the carbon tax in court, arguing it's unconstitutional. A legal challenge began this past Monday at the Ontario Court of Appeal. But some believe this is an issue that should be fought at the ballot box rather than in court. There is also the issue of the stickers that the Doug Ford PCs are making mandatory at all gas stations, which will clearly show the price increase is due to the federal carbon tax, with gas stations failing to display these stickers subject to fines of up to $10,000. Libby Snymer spoke with Jennifer Stewart, president and CEO of the Canadian Independent Petroleum Marketers Association, Ontario NDP critic for energy and climate change Peter and Conservative MPP Stephen Lecce. We have in Ontario led Canada's national emission reductions. We have reduced emissions by 22% by 2005. Now, we recognize in order to meet the Paris targets, though we are well on track. We have 8% to go. We have a made in Ontario plan that demonstrably reduces emissions without imposing a carbon tax. And I think the political question beyond the legal one is why are they so dogmatic in the only mechanism to reduce emissions is to impose a tax on working people. In the budget, we also found that there was a measure in there requiring the owners of gas stations to post stickers and that they face fines of up to $10,000 if they don't. Now, isn't that really politicizing the issue? The people of Ontario deserve to know the full truth and how the federal tax, the carbon tax, will make their lives more unaffordable. We have a duty to communicate transparently the costs of decisions of government. And I think it is in the public interest for, for folks, for listeners, for, for commuters to know what the federal liberal carbon tax will mean to them, what the actual cost will be. If you stand by the policy of carbon taxation, that raising prices on groceries, on, on, on home heating, on gasoline, is the right thing to do at a time when people's incomes are stagnating and the cost of living is rising, then you should be able to defend it at the ballot box, at the gas pump, uh, at the water cooler, at any place. And so I think it is fair game to do this, and I think it's in the public interest for folks to know the cost of any government, of all political stripes uh, that, that are being imposed on families in the province. Let's bring in Peter Tabbins, who is the NDP MPP for Toronto Danforth and the critic for energy and climate change. Is this court challenge in any way in the public interest? No. No, and on two levels, Libby. Uh, maybe there are more, but the first is it's a waste of $30 million. Uh, government of Manitoba did an analysis um, before they made a decision to get involved or not, and they knew from that analysis that they were going to lose. Uh, I was at the press conference with uh, Premier Ford last fall when he and his attorney general announced this. They could not even say that it might win. And reporters pressed them pretty hard. Can you win? Might you win? No, they wouldn't even go as far as maybe. This is all, Libby, about helping their federal buds, uh, the federal conservatives, Andrew Scheer, in the next election. It has nothing to do with our interests. 
here in Ontario. What's your take on this sticker thing on the pumps? I find it really astounding. I mean, this is the first time I've seen a government compel businesses to put government propaganda on their own property. And I think people should be really disturbed by this. I think businesses should be rejecting this. If the government wants to pay money for advertising, and money I think that would be wasted, but if it wants to pay money for advertising, that's one thing. But to tell businesses that they have to have government advertising and they'll be fined if they don't put it on, that's totally new for us here in Ontario. And I would think that people who believe in a free society should see this as really threatening. I'm going to bring in Jennifer Stewart, who is the president and CEO of the Canadian Independent Petroleum Marketers Association. Would you agree with Mr. Chabins that uh, this is something unprecedented and not very good, compelling business owners to display these stickers? Yeah, I don't think we've seen anything like this before. And a bit of a backstory, our association worked actually quite closely uh, with this government when we heard that there may be stickers and came up with some options. We're not partisan. You know, if you want to have a voluntary program and you want to show consumers what goes into the price of uh, gas, then you need to show all the taxes. You need to show the federal excise tax, the provincial sales tax, HST. In some cases, there are municipal taxes. Um, So we presented a bit of a pie chart option. Uh, that was non-political and just very transparent, you know, that was inclusive of the carbon tax. Uh, we don't have an opinion on the carbon tax, but, you know, if the government was going this route, we wanted to be part of the message uh, and we wanted to ensure it wasn't partisan. So, you know, our, our idea wasn't uh, wasn't accepted. You know, we really didn't want to come to the table with a solution that would, you know, appease everybody. But at the end of the day, we can't have a partisan um, perspective that we deliver to consumers. It's a lose-lose. Just remember, this is all about the Premier helping his buddies in the Conservative Party. Nothing to do with actually looking after us. And it's a waste of $30 million. And I don't think most Ontarians, doesn't matter what their political stripe is, want to see $30 million flushed away. That was Jennifer Stewart president and CEO of the Canadian Independent Petroleum Marketers Association, NDP critic for energy and climate change, Peter Tabins, and conservative MPP and parliamentary assistant to the premier, Stephen Lecce. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Another item of interest in the new provincial budget is the announcement of a multi-year plan to fix auto insurance, which most would agree is long overdue. The so-called putting drive first plan promises to ensure insurance resources are used to pay for the treatment accident victims need to recover from their injuries. This would prevent the reported hundreds of millions of dollars of insurance benefits, which are diverted each year into contingency fees for lawyers. And the PCs have committed to reevaluating the legal contingency fee arrangement to ensure consumers are protected. They say the changes are being made so that consumers will have greater choice in coverage and better control over pricing. Pete Karagiorgios, director of the Consumer and Industry Relations at the Insurance Bureau of Canada, stopped by to speak with Libby and offer his thoughts. They outlined their roadmap or their plan, and what they did say is that this is a longer-term multi-year strategy, which makes sense because we've seen governments who have come in and say, we're going to fix this overnight, and it doesn't really happen. So I think that's the responsible thing to do. Um, and it's really uh, 
interesting to look at even the budget bill because they have actually introduced some of that within the budget bill, particularly with regards to things like the electronic pink slips. And I know we've talked about that in the past. They've actually introduced legislation to make that a reality. So that's the first thing that looks like we're going to see. We know that on the one hand, there is a problem with insurance fraud, obviously, but people get hurt in accidents and they go to their insurance company. The insurance company fights it. And then they get a lawyer and the lawyer gets lots of money in contingency fees. So I'm not that familiar with the legalities of what the government can do to set uh, legal fees or the problems with with the insurance companies. But Well, I I think Libby and, and, and many people will appreciate that lawyers and courtrooms do not help injured people get better. Yeah. Treatment rooms, rooms and doctors do. And, and so the government is saying we need to focus on getting the care that people need, not focusing on the dollars. And I think that's important because that's something that the Marshall report and David Marshall, uh, in his report to the prior government talked about, and, and you talked about some of the other issues. So this government is actually being, uh, measured and responsible in its approach of looking for things to improve. And, and when you do have a claim, there are a whole sorts, all sorts of paperwork that needs, and it can be confusing. And the paperwork uh, is confusing. The ability for an individual to document and prove how injured they were and what treatment they need is challenging and, and requires assessments at times. So the government is saying, let's simplify this. Let's make sure people get the treatment they need as quickly as they can get it. And, and that makes sense. And, and from our standpoint as, as an industry, uh, we're supportive of steps that will help people recover quickly. Insurance companies can get rate hikes and the uh, regulator takes things into account like how well they're doing or if they've had big payouts. So it doesn't necessarily have to do with the consumer, their customers. No, no. And and the regulators do ask for a whole host of financial information and they want to make sure that the rates that are being charged are, are appropriate, are fair, but also will allow the insurance companies to continue to pay claims going forward. So uh, it's a balancing act that the regulator does do when they do approve rates. Uh, but it's important for consumers to understand that there are changes that are made. And so going to the source, looking at Fisco's website for that information gives us more information as consumers, and that's helpful to know. Pete, what else would you like to leave us with? Well, you know, it it is encouraging, I think, that this government has made a plan for changes to auto insurance and, and a thoughtful plan in the sense that they're being responsible. Rather than just making a political promise, they recognize that it's going to take a little bit of time because there are so many stakeholders involved. And I think as consumers, uh, we should all be uh, encouraged by that. And, and hopefully I look forward to coming back on the show and talking about perhaps some of the other changes that the government will introduce as they move forward over this multi-year strategy. That was Pete Caragiorgios, Director of the Consumer and Industry Relations at Insurance Bureau of Canada. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It made headlines all around the world, the devastating fire at the iconic Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Parisians stayed up into the early hours of Tuesday, watching in disbelief as the wooden roof of the 850-year-old landmark went up in flames and its spire fell into the fire. It took some nine hours to put out the blaze. 
France's president, Emmanuel Macron, has promised the cathedral will be rebuilt in about five years, while donations continue to pour in to rebuild Notre Dame. As for the cause of the fire, there is speculation it was linked to a current renovation project, but arson has been ruled out. Libby spoke with Neil McCarthy, Director of Communications from the Archdiocese of Toronto, and historical architect Philip Evans, a principal at ERA Architects, who offered up this expertise. It's a pretty extensive um, undertaking, uh, certainly, to um, restore and reconstruct a structure such as this, just imagining how long it took in the initial construction and um, the 1840s reconstruction that uh, happened um, probably took about 25 or so years, and this is this is a, this is a pretty significant impact and uh, amount of damage that we're seeing. So it could take many years to come. Do you think there's any possibility that it will be uh, restored? Is possibly the wrong word that with something that's completely different and modern, uh, like the pyramid that was added to the Louvre. I mean, that's certainly a possibility. Um, uh, some liberties had been taken in the 1840s. Uh, certainly the spire had been built uh, a little bit taller than, than it had originally uh, been done. I think what we can all agree is that um, despite the, uh, the, the you know, awful uh, scene that many of us witnessed yesterday, there, there could be, uh, um, there's always a, a positive note that could be uh, taken from. I mean, when you think about some of the fires that had played out at Windsor Castle or Glasgow School of Art, there's always a kind of a resurgence and an opportunity about how these buildings have been constructed, what is the opportunity to train youth and actually pass that knowledge of conservation skills, um, regardless of, of depending on material, to a new generation of conservationists and restoration uh, practice, practices. So that's a part of our sort of ongoing and evolving um, practice of conservation, and that that's one that it, that is beyond um, uh, the values of the building itself. It's it's something that's um, uh, lives within our with our own culture. So that's um, certainly going to be um, much much uh, much interest to all of us. Right now, I would like to bring in Neil McCarthy, who is the director of communications with the Archdiocese of Toronto. What is the Gut feeling about this at this moment after 24 hours. Well, you know the the images were heartbreaking yesterday to see this tremendous fire uh, ablaze in this church that is such a spiritual home uh, for Catholics from Paris first locally, but you know tourists around the world and those who even uh, don't share uh, any faith that come to uh, admire and respect the cathedral. So it's I mean just a, a sad sad moment. Anytime you see a church on fire, it's quite striking. And, uh, you know, our, our thoughts and prayers are certainly, you know, yesterday we're with the people who are fighting the fire and thankfully no one was hurt, but um, it's just shocking. Some people say those scenes of people coming to sing the hymns were a little surprising because France is pretty secular these days. Sometimes these kind of events will, will bring people to reflect a little bit deeper on their spirituality and to just appreciate in many ways that we do in, in whether it's a building or a loved one or when we experience any type of loss or pain, it causes us to kind of reflect on what's really important. And I think that, you know, there uh, there is a very strong faith community in France. It may not be as large as it once was, but certainly people who are uh, wanting to sustain the faith and felt that 
you know, uh, when we don't have answers, we come to pray. And uh, and last night, they certainly did that in front of uh, Notre Dame. Philip Evans, what would you like to leave us with? The thing that uh, uh, there's been so much uh, support, um, certainly a building that, that uh, uh, though it's been threatened and it's, and it's seen some some pretty extensive damage. It's uh, it's it's very clear that it's 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 an important building to to many of us across the world, and uh, uh, I have no doubt it will be uh, saved and um, uh, there for future generations to appreciate. Okay, and Neil McCarthy. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that cathedrals are a representation of faith in the heart of the world's biggest cities. We have that in Toronto. Paris, New York, all around the world, and it demonstrates the outreach that goes on, uh, people of faith who are motivated to be in the heart of the city where there are challenges, where there's poverty, all those types of things that uh, we want to be walking hand-in-hand with people on. So I'm, I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, people will continue to uh, to live their faith, even if they don't have the physical building for a time, but um, we all agree that I think the, the cathedral must continue. In conversation with Libby on Tuesday, Neil McCarthy, Director of Communications from the Archdiocese of Toronto, and historical architect Philip Evans. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Ontario's New Democrats are setting up a black caucus consisting of five MPPs in what leader Andrea Horvath calls an historic first for any political party in Ontario. The goal of the black caucus is to ensure that black perspectives are meaningfully incorporated into the work of the New Democrats on every file, from finance to health care, education, housing, the arts and beyond. Libby spoke with one of the Black Caucus members, MPP Jill Andrew of Toronto St. Paul's, and Brittany Andrew Amofa, Senior Policy and Research Analyst at the Broadbent Institute, who helped to advise and create the caucus. Well, we need it here because it's the first time any party has elected enough Black members to form a caucus. Uh, We also need this here because Black communities' voices need to be represented. They need to be seen, heard, and acted on And that's exactly what the Black Caucus is hoping to do and will do uh, with the work uh, in this sitting and in sittings to come, generations after generations. What can the Black Caucus do that it is not doing now? I mean, presumably, New Democrats are are sensitive to these issues from the get-go. Well, and and to be frank, I think think Ontarians are sensitive to the issues. That's good to hear. I don't think it's not necessarily a, a New Democrat thing. I think Ontarians want to see a fully restored and funded anti-racism secretariat. We know that anti-black racism exists, and we want to see something done that addresses the everyday and systemic discrimination that black communities face. And that's one of the key pillars that we're going to be working on as Black Caucus, along with finally abolishing Cardi, which is something that our previous government just couldn't get right. So we need to get it right this time, and we need to delete all that data collected uh, from the unconstitutional practice of carding. Uh, for decades and centuries, uh, like the inception of Canada since 1867, there hasn't necessarily um, been positive outcomes for black communities within this province. And we see that in the great outcomes today when it comes to the issues that affect black people. And the creation of a black caucus will allow for that for people to specifically focus on how Black people can be integrated into the political process, but more specifically, how can we ensure positive policy outcomes that have been greatly ignored by all political parties? 
So for me and for the members of the Black Caucus and for our NDP Black Caucus, what's exciting about this new caucus is our opportunity to build on our ongoing relationship with Black communities. It's an opportunity for us to listen, and it's an opportunity for us to grow in tandem with the Black communities in terms of what our needs are, how we're going to best see those uh, into fruition, and how we can work together to do that. I think it's really important as somebody who has a vested interest in seeing positive and equitable outcomes for Black communities within this province, it's important to look at this specifically through a voter lens or increasing votes at the ballot box. Uh, that is not the the process in which um, good policy outcomes are created. This is about ensuring that communities have a voice at the table. Uh, this is about ensuring that Black people have a place where their concerns are taken seriously and, and a body that can advocate to ensure that uh, they're being reflected in the decisions that are that are happening by this party. So I think it's, it's taking a few steps back and not always thinking about it through how will this impact us at the ballot box, but it's thinking about how do we ensure that we're working on behalf of all people and more specifically Black people within this province who have continuously been overlooked by political parties time and time again. A Black caucus can only um, positively help, not hurt Black communities, and I think that's extremely important to position it in that way as an opportunity, as Jill has stated, to build with new relationships, uh, build a new way of doing things to ensure that issues of racism don't continue to exist, to ensure that issues of xenophobia don't continue to exist, Mm -hmm. and as well as to look at issues of housing, education, um, as well as policing and criminal justice, don't continue to have grave outcomes where lives are, 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 are being negatively impacted and lost as a result of our current policies. And uh, Jill, what would you like to leave us with? I would like to leave you with the fact that the NDP Black Caucus is here. Uh, we are here to listen. We're here to work hard. And we're here to ensure that Black voices, perspectives, and lived experience are seen as paramount as we work with every piece of legislation, every motion, every item that comes through the Legislative Assembly of Ontario. It needs to be uh, situated within Black communities' experience, our expertise, and our ability to push forward towards Black liberation. That was Black Caucus member MPP Jill Andrew of Toronto-St. Paul's and Brittany Andrew Amofa, Senior Policy and Research Analyst at the Broadbent Institute. I'm Jane Brown. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Colin in Toronto phoned with another name for the carbon tax. All this carbon tax is, is a secondary GST. That's all it is. If they were concerned about greenhouse gases, the federal liberals should legislate so-called clean fuel usage, higher gas with ethanol in it. Taxing it does nothing to emit greenhouse gases. It's a secondary GST. Dave in Brampton called to share his take on Premier Doug Ford's thinking when it comes to the carbon tax. Doug Ford cancelled what Wynn had, and I didn't notice any difference in the cost when Wynn put it in, 
maybe it was, but I never noticed it. And I think he's just got a vendetta against everybody that doesn't think like Ford. Sim in Toronto offered up a suggestion on who should be subject to the carbon tax rather than consumers. I think that the carbon tax is ridiculous. What the government should be doing is putting a tax on the manufacture of equipment that uses up a lot of energy unnecessarily. I see people driving all these big uh, SUVs. I drive a Corolla. It goes along. It doesn't cost a lot. It doesn't burn a lot of gas. Tax the manufacturer and put a tax on the licenses so people won't want to buy that type of equipment. Bill in Toronto phoned to remind us what the Walkerton water crisis should have taught us. As far as Walkerton goes, there's there's government at its very best. You had nepotism there. I think the two yeah. employees you were referring to, one yeah. was the manager, and I think the other one that was testing the water was his brother-in-law. Yeah. When I look back at SARS, that's a one-off that's never, ever happened, and the city of Toronto should be proud the way they handled that. I, this is ridiculous to, to go talk about Walkerton and SARS because we have to have cutbacks. It's time to rein government in and, and, and bring it back to reality. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. Great calls, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is from Bob in Etobicoke, who expressed what the tragic Notre Dame Cathedral fire has made him realize. When I was watching the fire, what I, I realized that France has had a lot of problems recently. And I'm watching this fire and I'm thinking, now the people there have got something in common. It is given the French people something in common that they all support. Whether they're Catholic or whether they're not, everybody likes history. They like to maintain. They want to see something that was there yesterday. It'll be there tomorrow. It'll be there for their grandkids. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham. <laughs> 